0: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the podcast version of Source Story, a video series for history teachers. Each episode of this series features a conversation around a primary or secondary source that teachers can use in their classrooms. Given that the original version of this conversation was held in English, so too is this podcast episode. Watch the video, available on YouTube, to see the details of each source, and visit our website, sourcestory.ca, for resource links and lesson activities. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Catrera here, the Principal Storytelling Officer for the Histoire Source Source Story video series. A video series where myself or a French host get to talk with historians and archivists and curators and sociologists and anthropologists about one primary source that you might be able to bring into your classroom and ask, uh, what is the source? What is the story? And how can it challenge Canadian history? It is June, we are we are counting down the days until we are no longer in our formal classrooms and this video has been made in that type of spirit <laughs> to be able to think about something that you're not bringing into your classrooms, but maybe you are suggesting to students to bring with them into their summer vacation. And uh, I'm just really excited that we get to be able to have a conversation like this to end this year's academic series. Um, as you go into the summer, know that we'll be working hard through July and August to get our series ready for September. Uh, starting in September, we're going to have 10 videos between September. September and March both with myself and our French host as well as our reaction videos and um, I'm I'm so excited to be able to continue the conversation that we started this year um, with a whole new series for next year let us know of course um, in the comments or via email or all of our social media handles which you can see right here if you're interested in being part of our community helping to build uh, resources to identify Um, perhaps short stories, petite histoire that you want to share, or maybe there's some opportunities in your classes next year to bring these videos explicitly in and have your students respond back to them. Like that would just be the bee's knees for me to be able to share student work through our social media that you have created because of these videos. So think of us, we'll be thinking of you and know that you can always access them as a video just like this, of course, as a podcast as well. And if you are watching this, that you can watch it with French or English subtitles, just click on closed captioning below and it is, it is available for you uh, en anglais ou en français. And I'm sure our French host hates it when I say that because um, I am not Francophone and I'm sure that sounds terrible to a Francophone ear. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into today's video. Um, I'm excited. As, as I'm sure you guess. Uh, and the three reasons why I'm excited is one, this is the second video out of two where we partnered with Niche. Uh, Niche is a network of historians that are interested in the environment and the landscapes and they do such excellent, excellent work through their blog. And this is the second time that we get to work with them on um, a, a particular video. They identified a historian that would work well with us and they're gonna be doing some uh, correlated resources on their website to promote it. And I'm just so thankful for this collaboration because I don't know if I would have gotten to the two people, uh, Jenny Elliston from um, the last video that we did and Dale Barber for today, if uh, if it wasn't for them. So thank you so much. I'm so happy that we get to do partnerships and we have a couple partnerships coming up for next year too, which... I'm excited about. The second reason, I already told you who we're gonna talk to. We're talking with Dr. Dale Barber, who is a historian of beaches. <laughs> He's a historian of beaches. I mean, there's no better way to say it. Um, we're gonna be talking about beaches today, specifically Sunnyside Beach in Toronto, but the conversation isn't just about Toronto. Um, we were like laughing that it would be great to go down to Sunnyside and film the video on the beach, but we're not actually filming in June. It is way too cold to go down there and film, but also um, we couldn't screen share. You know, we'd be there, but we couldn't screen share. So that would be unfortunate. So we're going to be talking about beaches. The third reason why I'm excited is because we are talking about beaches, specifically how something like a public beach is becomes a built environment. And the reason why I wanted to kind of end the series on a conversation like this is because I don't necessarily think you're going to bring it into your classroom, but maybe you want to bring some of these ideas to your students in your classroom for them to think about as they are doing their summer holidays. If they go to a public beach or if they go to a public park and to think about how these spaces get created. How these spaces didn't just become a white sandy beach one day, but rather came a process where people can go for these leisure activities. And what does that mean in terms of colonization? What does that mean in terms of race and ethnicity? What does that mean in terms of gender? And so this is, this is a fun conversation because we get to talk about beaches, but really it's a serious conversation to talk about the different forces that make these public spaces, spaces where we can go and do leisure activities. So bring these ideas to your classroom for your students just maybe to think about, um, Uh, in the summer or if you're watching this in preparation for September it might be a good conversation starter um, when you start the the year back in September and I'm just thinking of like in September when there's like those extra very very hot days and the students are just like sweaty and in class and they're staring outside and they just want to be outside I don't know if it's nice or cruel to be like let's talk about the history of beaches actually no it's the, it's nice it's the nicest thing you could do and i hope that you do it <laughs> we are going to have some videos this summer just so you know they're going to be our short story petite histoire so make sure you you subscribe below you like this video so that you know when those videos are coming again on our social media we'll be promoting it and um and yeah all right let's uh let's go over to zoom let's talk with dale and uh, let's learn about beaches Dale, I am so excited to talk with you for this kind of balmy uh, summer final video. Um, before we get into it, please introduce yourself.
1: Okay, my name, is, uh, my name is Dale Barber. I'm a historian that looks at recreation areas. Uh, recreation areas, beaches, environments, places like that. Um, how people use them, kind of how they learn to use them as well. My uh, my background, my training from the, came from the University of Manitoba, or came from the uh, University of Manitoba, University of Toronto. I'm now working as a course instructor in Winnipeg. So I've been in Toronto, I've been in Winnipeg, um, I've been around a bit.
0: Well, I love that your work um, talks about, like you said, these these areas and how we learn to use them and how we create them. Because so much of what we're gonna talk about while we're gonna talk about a specific location can be you know, extrapolated to other places. And I think that's always useful when you have so many experiences in different places that you can pull on the learning um, of those. So thanks for grounding us in both uh, Winnipeg and Toronto. Um, okay, so we're talking about a Toronto source today. Uh, what is that source?
1: We're talking about Sunnyside Beach in Toronto. It's a beach on the western side of the city. Um, it has a long history in Toronto. And at the beginning of the 20th century, it was a super popular bathing beach in Toronto. So we're gonna be talking about Sunnyside and we've got a picture up. I think we're kind of looking at the off season here, but this is the, uh, the stretch of Sunnyside, looking out towards the Humber River in Toronto.
0: You know, I love that we're talking about a beach because there sometimes there are shots when it is more in season that makes it seem very dare I even say tropical <laughs> Sunnyside beach. but also there are lots of beaches in Toronto but around Canada too that have these kind of different flavors they seem very familiar but also unfamiliar because of the original landscape so I can't wait to get into it it's interesting too I mentioned this when we were talking beforehand that my grandmother when she was a teenager that little period between when she was a teenager before she was a mother spent a lot of time partying and dancing at Sunnyside so I always have a soft spot in my heart for it
1: your grandmother was probably the ideal demographic they were looking for when they built a place like Sunnyside. They imagined that young adult crowd, you know, particularly people between uh, you know, their teenagers in their early 20s, between uh, you know, when they're still single, they're going out to party. They built Sunnyside to be that sort of place. When they originally built it, it had a beach, it had an amusement park, and they were thinking, if we can get these young singles out here, you know, this sort of new market, uh, we can make some money from them.
0: Yeah, Uh, let's just dive right into capitalism. (laughs) Uh, Do you wanna take your screen share now? Sunnyside
1: was all about capitalism. (laughs) Sunnyside was all about capitalism. Um, I kinda wanna, one of my goals in this project is to sort of uh, denaturalize how we think about beaches. We think of them as a natural environment. I want you to think of Sunnyside as a bit unnatural. It's a place that had to be built and it's a place that was built with certain goals in mind, including a bit of capitalism.
0: Okay, so, you know, the second question in this series is, what is the story? And I think that that last little bit, you've hinted at what the story is going to be. And I know, because I've seen some of your work, and we talked a little bit about uh, this, this source beforehand, That I know we're kind of going to go through quite a large stretch of time, which I think is really exciting, because like, as someone that lives in toronto i can go visit there now my grandmother would have visited there in the late 40s early 50s but we're going right back to the beginning of the century right so why don't we why don't we like get right into it what is the story of this source how can we think of it as like not like a non-natural place how can we understand it with the that intersected intersection with capitalism
1: all right i want us to think of sunnyside beach as um we're gonna go right back to the uh, the late 19th century here. And I want you to think of what using a beach would have been like back then. Uh, back then, if you were using a beach, you were probably male and you probably weren't wearing a bathing suit. You were you were skinny dipping, as we would call it now. Uh, and there weren't really designated recreation spots for bathing. So people were bathing off the docks. They were bathing, uh, bathing around uh, logs that would be floating in the water. You know, they were they're bathing in spaces of, va- of availability, I would call it. So, again, if we go back to the 19th century, the beach, as sort of a place where men and women went together as a recreational space, it didn't really exist in Toronto. In some ways, we had to kind of import it in. So, as yep.
0: a And and of course, just to to cut in there quickly, of course, we're talking about like settler populations. We're talking about leisure. We're not talking about Indigenous uses of Lake Ontario, which is where the Sunnyside Beach is, because that kind of importing in is literally part of that kind of settler kind of colonialism to build, to to nation build, right?
1: It is exactly. You know, we we tend to think of settler colonialism as... uh, you know, bringing in our type of agriculture, you know, bringing in, you know, the set of plants we wanna grow, setting up our cities. It's also, I'm gonna say, taking possession of the land in an embodied fashion, you know, saying, okay, we're gonna start using this area recreationally and we're we're gonna do things over here, we're gonna do things over here. And as part of that, you know, as, as bathers, you also kind of have to learn the local environment. Something indigenous people would have done beforehand, Something. Settler colonialists have to do as they come into these areas. So yeah, it is very much taking possession of the waterfront and using it for your purposes. Absolutely.
0: I think you have some well, archival photographs to help us understand some of the different elements of Sunnyside. Is that right?
1: I kind of want to walk us through what Sunnyside would have looked like around 1900 or so. By this point, you know, it's primarily a beach where men and women can bathe together. So by 1900, you know, it's expected that you know men and women can use this space. The men are expected to be in bathing suits. The women are expected to be in bathing suits. But what I want to point out is that when we look at Sunny Side around 1900 or so, it doesn't look like a beach is supposed to. the uh, The shoreline is torn up. It's got hydro lines offshore that are Looping around Lake Ontario to Niagara Falls, it doesn't look like a beach should.
0: I think that's a really interesting activity. If a teacher wanted to do to talk about this in their classroom, it's a really interesting activity to kind of um, brainstorm with their students like what do you expect a beach to look like and and then use a photograph like this as a comparison to talk about what is what is there and as, as a beach as you expect it because you know this is to be a beach and what are the things that are unexpected and how also might this how might your expectations of a beach change depending on where you live and where you've been and what your family has from because I think as a way to think about how these spaces get created it's really useful to to identify your expectations of these spaces too like to verbalize them
1: yeah, no, that's a good point. You can think about how our expectations of what a beach should look like, you know, have been built up over time. You know, depending on what sort of culture we exist in and what our own experiences have been. We're looking at a picture of Sunnyside in 1912 here. You know, I'll flag again. It doesn't it's got structures on it that we wouldn't expect from a the beach? They've actually built an overpass over part of the beach. As part of building that overpass, they imagine that the uh, The bathers would move on, but they don't. You know, the the bathers stick to their old bathing areas, despite the fact the environment is in some ways being compromised by this construction around it.
0: Okay, so this is not a photograph, and it looks so different than the photographs that you just showed us, because those ones were a lot of children it was a little chaotic it definitely was not safe it would not pass code now whatever code I'm talking about Uh, and this is from a couple years later circa 1914 can you tell me a little bit about this as a way to think about that development to Sunnyside
1: so the the image I'm showing you here is a plan again from about 1914 and it's Toronto imagining what Sunnyside could look like. In about 1912, Toronto decided to redevelop its waterfront, its entire waterfront. So the Toronto Harbour Commission uh, launched a plan that imagined creating a better harbour, so ships could dock and do all that in the central waterfront, but also imagined creating a recreation area over where Sunnyside is. Now, initially, they didn't always imagine that bathing would be a part of that some of the initial plans for the waterfront envisioned a waterfront where you would drive by or you would take a train by and you might look out on the water and say how pretty that looks but you wouldn't actually use it so in this plan you know we can see there there isn't even a beach there's an area where the boats can come in but there isn't much thought about what the beach should look like
0: But there is is the train, uh, there's public transit, which is interesting. There are elements here that if you are familiar with the area, you know, you can see kind of echoes of, but that beachfront is completely different. And the fact, especially like I'm thinking that modern picture that you showed, right? That beachfront is is so different, uh, you know, 110 years on.
1: Early plans were proposed by the Toronto Harbour Commission, um, and we slowly see them being adapted. You know, slowly the bathers keep reclaiming and reclaiming more space, and part of the reason for that as well is that the Toronto Harbour Commission realizes there, there is money to be made from creating a, a stronger recreational area on the uh, on the western waterfront. So you know, plans like this are fairly quickly dropped. It's like, all right, we need to create a recreation area there eventually we even need to create an amusement park there that'll service more people and will allow us to earn more money
0: so you said that they that people like were kind of claiming it and that's why the toronto harbor commission was like okay we need to do something else with it so this photograph uh, i think you're going to tell us a little bit about that transition to the recre the the like the, like the recreation area, not just the beaching area, but the amusement park and stuff. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: We're looking at Sunnyside Beach under construction here. And again, I, I do want us to think of this idea that Sunnyside Beach actually had to be built. The, um, the Toronto Harbour Commission comes in and extends the shoreline, pushes the shoreline out further to create a sandy stretch of territory. You know, it pushes that shoreline out so that the beach looks like a beach. In this picture, I think we're actually seeing uh, probably dredges working offshore, and they're also um, constructing the, uh, the, uh, the beach protection areas offshore. We've got uh, walls offshore that are intended to pr- protect the beach from shoreline erosion. So we're seeing them being built here as well. Um, funny thing about the construction of Sunnyside, is that people kept using it while it was being built. Does that sound dangerous? It absolutely was. There were were drownings because people would step into areas that had been dredged out or water was carving out holes in the beach. So there was a period in the 1910s uh, where Sunnyside was a dangerous area to bathe, still popular, people still wanted to be there. that was their traditional space.
0: Okay so this photograph that is clearly we've time traveled but maybe not as much as one might think this is a completely different sunny side but from that last picture we talked about when you were saying that people were drowning and it wasn't safe and they were building out the 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 beach itself like i mean it was wasn't even a a decade or or was it am i
1: no you're right the uh, picture we had been looking at from, was from the 1910s. Sunnyside under construction. Here we're looking at what, what, what would have been the final product. This is Sunnyside in the 1920s, probably the the early 1920s. Um, Sunnyside built. This is uh, this is everything they imagined Sunnyside would be. We've got a boardwalk for people to stroll on. We've got a beach that people are swimming on. I think you can see even broader sections of the beach in the background of the photo. We've got a road. Well, the road was critical. We needed a transportation network through there. We've got an amusement park on the uh, shore side of the picture there. And we've got crowds of people you know, out at the beach, out at the amusement park, pulling this all together. So this is Sunnyside in its, with apologies, high tide.
0: I thought you were going to say heyday, but you just... You went right in there. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's so interesting because, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but like the main thing that I think of when I see this photograph in comparison to the one that we, that you had just shown was the difference in class. Like there, you know, people are fully dressed. There are tons of cars. There's clearly like a different approach to being in this space than there was uh, a decade earlier, and that is a really striking example. And I know that Sunnyside Beach continued to be busy, and you have some other archival photographs that showed people using the different elements of the beach in the space. Shall we go to those?
1: Yeah, let's take a look at uh, let's take a look at this one. We're looking at the amusement park in this photo. So again, I, I want us to think of these crowds of people coming out to the amusement park a lot of them adults. You know, we tend to think of amusement parks as places where kids went, but in the early 20th century, a lot of times it was where men and women went, you know, to go out, uh, to go out on a date or to go out and sort of, you know, cruise and look for a potential date partner. So there's a kind of a different age dynamic going on here. They look very middle-class in some way. You know, people were dressing up, going out to the amusement park uh, was a bit, of a bit of an event For what it's worth, they probably weren't all middle class. You know, a lot of these people were dressing up, they were working class, they were putting on their sort of Sunday best and going out for an event. Um, The Harbor Commission, when it was planning Sunnyside, you know, always sort of imagined a refined environment. And in pictures like this, we, you know, we get a sense that they succeeded. But the working class also made space of their own on Sunnyside. So I don't want us to think of this as just a sort of, you know, wealthy playground. You know, poor people, you know, carved out their territory there as well.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing that struck me, um, considering, um, you know, we're into our third year of the pandemic, is all the people. <laughs> and then, like, when you think about what happened between, um uh between those first photographs that you showed us and these ones, and there was a whole world war. And, you know, now, now that we're getting into summer, I know I'm really looking forward to being around people a little bit more despite the, you know, the the fears of, of COVID, but I'm excited sure. to be around people more. And I, I wonder when I look at a photograph like this, if people too coming out of World War II and the influenza epidemic, if they also were... Excited to be around other people, right? And like you said, working class people use these spaces and built these spaces as well. And I wonder if there was an element of that of 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 um, really appreciating being a- around each other and being alive and having leisure time to be able to to do this.
1: Being back in the crowd, in some ways, yeah, I think there was an element of that. You know, I think there was an element of that. Uh, you know that makes us think about these crowds in the 1920s but even in the late 1940s and the early 1950s coming out of uh, coming out of World War II a lot of these beaches sort of had their their second life after World War II uh, you know if we want to skip to a different beach we could take a look take a look at Winnipeg Beach uh, in Manitoba you know some of its best years were in the years immediately following the Second World War when you know People were recovering. People wanted, to, uh, people wanted to party in some ways. They wanted to go someplace and uh, have fun. So there is, there, is a, there is a recovery narrative here as well, I think. This is sort of an idealized picture of Sunnyside. We've got the, uh, the bathing pavilion in the background, this, this monstrous bathing pavilion where hundreds of people could go in and change clothes and come out and use the beach. And we've got the, um, we've got the beach crowded and we've got all the people on this pier in front of the bathing pavilion posing for the photograph, you know, make no mistake, this is very much a group of people that knew their picture was being taken. But this is Sunny Side as it's opening in the 1920s, you know, the future, the way we should be using the beach has arrived.
0: And that that pavilion, not not the wooden structure, wooden and concrete structure, but that pavilion is is still there. And through the magic of editing, we're back to this photograph, which is where we started, and we see that same structure that we saw in the the photograph from the 1920s. And I think you have some better shots of it too. Correct?
1: Yeah, we're looking at the uh, the Sunnyside bathing pavilion once again. It's uh, survived, and it's uh, survived from the 1920s, still being used today. Sure, we can see people playing on the waterfront, they're playing in the sand. Not too many of them are bathing. On the other side of the bathing pavilion, they actually built a pool. You know, after doing all this work of creating a, su- creating a beach at Sunnyside, they realized it was pretty cold in Lake Ontario for much of the year. So they actually built a pool next to Sunnyside and said, if we want to monetize bathing, we somehow got to control the environment. So, they built a pool where they could keep the water a bit warmer. So, we're seeing people playing on the beach here. The people swimming are probably over in the pool.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So, that was very useful. And I mean, just, I, I, I don't know. Now I feel very self conscious about my grandmother's age. Um, but we didn't even talk about sunny side when she would have been using it. And I think that's so exciting because, you know, it has this. 100 plus year history that we just talked about now, let alone before that. And that really kind of shows like I said, that the, the length of time that we can think about these spaces as spaces in flux, which leads to our final question as just a way to wrap up our conversation, which is how can we teach with a space like Sunnyside beach, a, a beach that is a recreation point in Canada? How can we teach with that as a way to challenge Canadian history? And, you know, I, before i throw it to you i think i just want to highlight that we've kind of talked about some of those things already in that you know a lot of kind of discourse about canada as being this like place of nature but you've really highlighted how it is a place of building landscapes for certain purposes and as we talked about right at the beginning how that intersects with colonialism settler colonialism and how we talked about throughout also like gender and class so are there you know is there a way that you want to kind of end this conversation to pick up on how you can teach with a space like this to challenge canadian history i guess
1: i would just say that i i am again you know once again trying to denaturalize nature. Like I, I want us to think of uh, how the environment we take for granted a lot of times, you know, has been constructed, has been reshaped to do a particular job. So the beach, you know, particularly beaches when we look at the at Toronto, but also in other areas to a degree, have been shaped and sometimes modeled to play a particular role. It's, you know, we wanna create recreation space here we wanna create recreation space for particular people. Um, we wanna create recreation space that can also turn a profit for the people running businesses around that recreation space. So again, the sort of environments that we, uh, we assume are just natural that are just out there often have been crafted in one way or another to, um, to do their job better, you know, or some, in some cases to, to do that job entirely. Again, when we look at Sunnyside, it was not a well-constructed beach as a natural environment, but as an unnatural environment, you know, it could do that job a little better.
0: You know, one of the, one of, uh, a big thing of the TRC, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, especially as related to teaching and learning in elementary, uh, elementary and high schools, is that yes, we need to teach about residential schools, but it's bigger than that we have to really understand and bring in a greater connection to indigenous epistemologies and connection to the land the land and water and what I'm you know one of the things that I'm hearing from you too is that in in recognizing the built construction of These these areas that we consider natural, in recognizing that we actually can get a better sense of our own connection to the land. To be able to think about was this shore always sand or was it stone? The way that it was like pebbles, the way that it was kind of originally was for the majority of 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 history. And I think I I just really love that we're ending the series on these conversations because I think it really can help people think more broadly about land and environment and nature and what is created and what isn't and how can we develop closer relationships to what was here before colonialism and so so that we can better honor a sustainable future that keeps this land in place some of the things that i'm thinking of that are kind of lessons or like activities or assignments that teachers can do in their classroom around this is to do that very thing of like mapping certain locations, to be able to look at archival photographs of places that are, you know, they understand as natural places in their communities to be able to show what is similar and different in order to show that built environment, but also even to to go to a place and, like, for example, go to Sunnyside Beach and to do some like writing about what do you feel, what do you see, what do you hear, and how would that have changed? How would that have been different fifty years ago, or a hundred years ago, or two hundred years ago, or millennia ago? As a way to really trigger that kind of conversation about the the building of an environment, and I really appreciate you bringing so much of that history to this conversation. So thank you.
1: We can think of this as an example of ecological imperialism.
0: Oh, that's a big one.
1: Ecological a,
0: imperialism.
1: Ecological imperialism. You know, we can think of it as just one other thing that Europeans imported into, uh, into the Americas. You know, we brought, our, we brought our food, we brought our plants, we brought our animals we brought our way of thinking about the environment Mm -hmm. and then we shaped the environment we found to sort of match that way of thinking about it. So leisure, recreation, the environment should look a particular way. If nature doesn't provide, we will transform it to look that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a powerful way to end. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you for your time.
0: Yeah. Uh, That is a picture uh, of my grandmother right there. Oh, that black and white photograph of her when she was 14. Um, She may, it may be a photo booth taken at Sunnyside. (laughs) So um, next time we'll have to do a part two where we just talk about the dance halls. Um, Dale, where can people um, learn more about your work and how can they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, if you want, if people want to get a hold of me, I'm always, well, I don't want to say always, but far too often, available on Twitter, at Dale Barber. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about these sort of topics, I've got a couple of books out there. You can get uh, Undressed Toronto, which looks at the history of bathing in Toronto, and I've got a book out on Winnipeg Beach that looks, like, looks at how Winnipeg Beach was the place to go for Winnipegers and Manitobans in the early 20th century.
0: Well, I know you mentioned Winnipeg Beach in the middle of the conversation and we, you know, we're not talking about that right now, but I'm glad that you can point people to where they can learn more about kind of similar and different processes there. So we'll make sure to have links to your books below, uh, as well as your Twitter account. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Have a wonderful summer. Enjoy bathing wherever you go leisurely bathe.
1: Thanks a lot for your time. This has been great.
0: Okay. Bye. Take care. This series is a collaboration between Historic Spaces and Educational Consultancy and Glendon College York University. This series has been made possible by the Government of Canada.